Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at AskNoahShow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. So Steve has the night off. I'm working solo tonight, in part because I'm on my way to Linux Fest Northwest. And I know what you're thinking. Noah, I thought Linux Fest Northwest was canceled well part of linux northwest was canceled the conference itself it's true we won't be meeting at bellingham technical college and won't have the usual go-arounds as far as talks go however all of the other extracurricular stuff dare i say the best parts of linux fest northwest are absolutely still happening and they'll be going on throughout the weekend so i'll be on my way there i'll be there tomorrow and I'll be meeting up with Chris Fisher from Jupiter Broadcasting. They've got an exciting weekend planned for everyone. So if you find yourself with tickets, plane tickets, hotel reservations, you already had plans to go and you're thinking, well, now I'm going to be stuck in the Seattle area, but I don't know what to do. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Check out some of the meetups that they have scheduled. Join some of the interactive matrix rooms and come hang out with us for the weekend again i would tell you the talks don't get me wrong they're valuable hearing from industry experts absolutely have their place and are absolutely valuable but i would tell you that the best part of any linux conference and this is true southeast linux fest it's true of scale it's true of linux fest northwest it's true of texas linux fest it's true of ohio the best part about it is meeting other people smarter than you sitting down in a room and being able to have a conversation with them and so that's what I'll be doing the rest of the week, and I hope to see you there. 1-855-450-NOAH, it's 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. You've heard about the framework laptop, right? It is a sustainable laptop. The idea is you buy it one time, and you can upgrade it for the rest of your life. Now, when it first came out, I'll be very honest with you, I was a little bit skeptical. I thought to myself, it's one company designing all of the expansion modules and oh by the way USB A a type C charging port video out these are not expansion models modules this is what i expect out of a laptop so i was a little hesitant at first then a couple of years came around and i started to see some of them in the wild and i started to hear fe- feedback from people that were saying this is absolutely incredible it's an absolutely outstanding laptop then I started to see other companies, companies like Cooler Master, releasing a desktop PC case that has the ability to house the framework's laptop motherboard. Now you're saying to yourself, no, why would I want to have a desktop case to house a framework's laptop motherboard? Because it allows you to do more with that laptop motherboard than just be a laptop. And oh, by the way, they just came out with an AMD variant. So Those that were on the bus to begin with and said, I'm going to make an investment in framework. I want to buy a laptop once. I'm not just going to throw it away every three to five years. Instead, I'm going to upgrade the parts inside of it. 
Those people today have the opportunity to take their Intel board out of their framework laptop, put an AMD board in their framework laptop, probably reinstall the operating system if you want to be on the safe side, but hey, it's Linux, it'll probably work either way, and then boot it and run. And you can take that old Intel lap motherboard and you can repurpose it. You can repurpose it with another laptop. You could repurpose it with the Cooler Master case and make a desktop out of it. Very, very cool stuff they have going on. By the way, I spent some time on Framework site this, this week, and one of the things that drew my attention was you can order all of the individual parts of this laptop separately. One of my kids said, I'm interested in sustainability. I want to purchase a computer that I can maintain myself for years to come. And we started talking about framework. And the question became, well, how much money would I have to set aside to know that I can replace the parts inside of the framework laptop? And so I went down the parts list. The most expensive part of that laptop is the $200 motherboard processor combo. Now, if you think about it, where else can you buy an Intel motherboard with an Intel i5, 13 Gen i5, that's ready to roll. Type-C ports all around the motherboard. All you got to do is give it some power, some RAM, some storage, and you're good to go. You can have a laptop anywhere. Coincidentally, or not coincidentally, that is the only part that is out of stock on Framework. In part because I'm sure people looked at it and went, wow, you can buy basically a, fully com- a full computer for like $200. So, you take that information, you kind of compare and contrast it with our conversation about Raspberry Pis last week. Framework is a compelling, compelling buy. But don't take my word for it. Take the word of somebody who spent their own money on it. Somebody who saved for six and a half years and made the biggest purchase of his life. How old are you? And how did you acquire the money to make a purchase of a laptop in the first place? I'm 13, and so I've been saving for like six plus six and a half years. What are the rules in your house about earning money and saving money? Or we should give about 10% of what we make. I like to save about like probably about 50%. Usually I end up saving a little bit more. And then the other 40% I can spend, but a lot of the time I will save it. What did you previously have before you bought this one? Uh, I had a Lenovo ThinkPad X270. And what led you to wanting a new laptop? Tell me that story. I don't know. I'd had an X270 for most of my life. I knew at some point I would probably want a nicer computer, so I kind of started looking at it. All the computer manufacturers out there in the world, mm-hmm. what led you to Framework? I think I, was, I heard about it when I was talking to someone about things that last a long time. And one of the things that came up was frameworks, or I mean laptops, we started talking about was framework because they have a laptop that's all modular, so you can take stuff out and put stuff in, like even the USB ports on the side and the uh, micro SD, yeah, that's micro SD, uh, the micro SD um, slot and the Type-C and DisplayPort and HDMI, like they're all modular, so I can pick and choose which ones I want. So you're looking for a laptop that's going to last you a long time. You come across Framework. What was your initial thought when you went to their site? Or what was your initial exploration? What did that look like? I don't know. I guess I was kind of like impressed because like no one else really makes a laptop that can be modular, can last a long time because everyone wants to make laptops that are 
kind of cheap and work well so that then they make more money off of it. Tell me about the day that you decided to actually go ahead and make the pull the trigger and actually make the purchase of the framework laptop. How, how did that go that day? I think I was just kind of like minding my own business and then framework or like the idea to like go look at a framework laptop and I was like if I was to buy a framework laptop in how I would want it how much would that cost so then I went to their site and I picked out all the specific specifications and then I was like I can actually afford this and then I was like wait maybe I do want to buy this and then it kind of like spiraled into like I really want to buy this so they cut you a break if you build it yourself. It's mm-hmm. $200 more if you do it yourself. What led you down the decision of, of the do-it-yourself route? It kind of made sense to me that I would build it myself because I had already picked out a different hard drive. So if I was going to put it all together, and if I was going to put it all together, I'd want to know how it goes together. If I'm going to try and make it last, then I need to know like how it goes together and how to put it together so I can take it apart. So for you, it was kind of a learning experience. Um, yeah, I guess. Had you taken apart laptops before? Um, not like super often, and really the only thing I had taken out of a laptop, with the intention of having it work after, was I would just take out the hard drive, and then I guess a a couple times I had taken out like the RAM and stuff. So sometimes you took apart computers without the intention of putting them back together? Well, like if I broke them, then I would want to like see if I could put them back together. Whether or not my goal was to make them work, just wanted to see if I could take them apart and put them back together. So you sit down just to start exploring the framework website. Mm -hmm. You pull up some of their models and you start pricing it out and you go, this is actually more affordable than I thought it was. How did you go from that to, I got a framework on the way? I knew that I wanted to buy a nicer laptop at some point and I saw that I could afford it now. And so I thought, why not buy it now? Well, I don't have to pay for anything, really. Instead of doing it when, like, I have to pay for food and gas for a car and maintain a car and stuff like that. So you order the laptop. What was the experience like actually going through the order process? And how long did it take you to get your completed laptop from the time you ordered it? Picking out all the stuff, like, on their website probably took... A minute. It's pretty straightforward. Like, you just pick the, um, like, how much RAM you want, how much uh, storage you want, what kind of processor you want. And then I order it, and it ends up taking, I think it was three days for it to actually ship. But after that, after it had shipped, it made it into the U.S. like a day later. And then I think it got to my house like the day after that or something. So, it was pretty quick. So, you get home from school, you walk home. How did you find your new laptop? Tell me that story. So, I finished school. I asked my mom, like, hey, do you know if it got here? She's like, I don't think so. So, I get home. I'm not really expecting it to be there. So, I walk into my room, and I think the box, it was either on my bed or on my desk. And the second I see it, I'm like, oh, it's here. So, I was super excited, and... I think the first thing I did was run over to it and open it to see to make sure it was my laptop. And then once I realized it was like I had a little bit of homework, but I, I didn't really care at that point. So I, I ended up I did finish my homework. I finished it. But 
I open the box, and it's very organized. Like, they organized it very well. One of the things I remember very well was if you open a laptop and it has the metal frame, it has no, like, frame around the screen, and it has no keyboard, and all of its insides are revealed, and then there's just, like, a plastic case over it. Um, So you can see all the parts, but they're protected. I mean, I don't know how much protection I was actually giving, but, like, yeah. Like, I couldn't, like, reach in and touch anything until I took it off. It wasn't really secured or anything. So I take it off, and there, everything else except for, like, USB-A and stuff, like, on the side. So none of those things were there. The hard drive wasn't there. The memory wasn't there. And I think they were all, like, in separate boxes. So you pull this out, you get the main chassis along with the motherboard and some of the peripherals installed, but Mm -hmm. memory storage, all of that separate. Now, you said you had picked out your hard drive ahead of time. What did you land on for storage and why not just order from Framework? I knew that I wanted to like pick out like a good hard drive at some point. And this this was pretty far um, before I even ordered my Framework laptop. But I was just like... I kind of want to pick out a nice hard drive, so if my computer ever breaks or I ever need another one, I can kind of just order it. So I ended up landing on a 500 gig Samsung 980 Pro NVMe drive. You open everything up, you see all of the expansion modules that are separate. Was it pretty straightforward on how to put the entire computer together? Yeah, it was all labeled and stuff. So like the memory had like a sticker over it and it had like two memory ports and then this I found it kind of annoying that the sticker was actually covering it. And I I didn't want to take it off because I was like, if I ever need to put this back together, I'd kind of like to keep the sticker there. But you have to take this, or you don't have to, but it's much more convenient to take the sticker off. And then everything else was labeled. So the battery's labeled, the storage is labeled. So you get everything assembled and you get everything together. What was the initial powering on slash OS installation? How does that process work? I power it on, and it gives me an error message. It was like a really nice message telling me that I didn't have an OS and that I should try and get something to boot off of. So eventually you get boot medium. Yep. What was the first operating system you installed? How did it work? Um, the first one I went for was Kubuntu, because that's what I usually use. When I first try it, the installation part goes just fine, and... So I get to the part where, like, it asks you to, like, remove the installation thing and press enter. So I do that, and it's it looks like it's booting. I type in my password, or my encryption password. Instead of launching KDE, it just, like, it's just a black screen. So that ended up being a problem with the hard drive. So you ended up having a, a, a bad MVME drive. Yep. We run over to Best Buy. We get you a new MVME drive. Yep. We plug it in. From that point on... What did the experience look like? The uh, boot menu is super straightforward. It all makes sense. It's all like if you're if you know what the setting does, like it's very organized and stuff. There is I didn't I don't think I had any problems with the laptop itself. Everything that I ordered from Framework worked perfectly. So it ended up only being the hard drive that was the problem. You get the operating system installed and now you start using the laptop. What kind of things are you noticing? Comparatively to my X270 the keyboard's a bit bigger because the X270 was a 12 and a half inch. This is a 13 and a half, or is it 13? I think it's 13 and a half. 
Um, it doesn't have like the specific buttons for left click and right click. The trackpad is it's I guess it's just a trackpad. Um, but one of the things that really stood out to me was it has a 2K display, so it's like super big compared to your X270, which has a what 1080P? Yeah, I think so. Initially, as you start using it, did you appreciate the the extra screen real estate? Have you started to use it for different things and, and started to take advantage of it? At first, I found it kind of like weird because that's over double what I had, so I found it like super big and a little bit of obnoxious to like have that much screen real estate. But like now that I've used it for a couple days, it's more it feels more normal. So if you were to compare your X270 to this computer, how would you describe the differences between the two? Um this one has higher resolution, higher resolution, just a bigger laptop in general. The insides are like more organized. The hard drive I had so uh was 128 gigs, so now I have so I have like four times the amount of memory and storage. So it's just like it's a way more powerful and I just have a lot more power, I guess. Somebody out there is thinking, well, but I want to try Ubuntu or I want to try Arch. Or I want to try what all distros have you installed on your framework and what have you liked the best? When we were trying to figure out what was wrong with it, we installed Ubuntu. I didn't really or like Ubuntu with a GNOME and I didn't really try it out. We were just kind of doing it to see, to make sure, like, because that's the one that they recommend. So uh, we installed that one after we realized Kubuntu wasn't working. And I think even with the faulty hard drive, I think it worked good. I didn't really play around with it, though, because I wanted to get Kubuntu working. And then when we got the new hard drive, Kubuntu, I think, works really good. And then I also tried Arch, and Arch has also been working really good. All the drivers work right out of the box. You didn't have to futz with anything, didn't have to tweak anything or monkey anything. It just, you installed it and started using it. Um, other than, like, changing the settings, I like, no. What are your expectations for the laptop long-term as far as being able to maintain it and, and upgrade it? How, you know, what are you hoping to get out of it? I hope that it'll last me, at least the chassis part of it will last me, the rest of my life and I'm probably I expect to have to like upgrade this stuff between now and when I'm 30 some somewhere in between there I'm guessing I'm gonna have to like start changing stuff out because like you can't keep some parts of a computer forever who do you think the laptop is best suited for if you were if if your friend asked you for a laptop recommendation or you were talking about to the ideal framework customer who is that Someone who knows how to put a computer together, because, like, if you're going to buy a laptop that is all modular, it's probably for someone who knows how a computer goes together and wants the power to be able to change that stuff out. But even if, like, you're just buying a laptop, um, it's a good laptop because, like, you could totally send it to, like, some sort of company or professional that does know how to like take apart a laptop and it probably because like there's some things in a laptop you can't really replace in this one you can replace everything so it's good for people who either know how to do it or are willing to spend the money to like go get it fixed it's probably not good for someone who like drops computers and stuff because like it's a metal frame so that's going to dent it but it's good for nerds because you can like take it apart and stuff 
Have you tried gaming on it? What games work? What games gave it a run for its money? How does it compare with something like the Steam Deck? I haven't tried a ton of games. I think I've only actually tried one. I tried Killing Floor 2. It is a 90 gigabyte game. So it's a pretty big game. And it ran almost as smoothly as the Steam Deck. Steam Deck was a little better. Steam Deck was a little bit better. But to the average person, you probably couldn't tell the difference. You just play a lot of Killing Floor 2? Yeah. So I can I can tell that, like, it might have just been because, like, the Steam Deck has, like, a more powerful graphics card and stuff. It was just, like, it ran a little bit smoother. The Steam Deck ran a little bit smoother. Computer was a little bit slower. Didn't look quite as good. Not, like, super bad or anything, but didn't look quite as good. But, no, I, th- I think it worked just fine for it. How did you, after you got your operating system installed and you went to actually use the computer, how did you go about getting everything set up? Did you run into any problems and did all of your applications work like you thought they would? Um, First, I have like my little flash drive. So I plug that in, type my password, and then I run my Ansible script and that installs all of my applications and um, it sets some of the settings. And did you run that on on your framework? I did, and it worked flawlessly. I don't think I've had an application not work on the laptop yet. At least not one that I've tried before and know it works, and then tried on this one and it didn't work. What would you say to somebody who's looking at a framework laptop or thinking about it? Or maybe if there's another kid out there, and that kid is saying, you know, I'm looking for a computer, but I'm a kid, and I don't know if this is the right choice for me. Framework has videos that that are free and they have, so everything in the computer is labeled and then with that is a QR code. So, and then it sends you to a link on, I think, what it does and how to repair it. So, if you're good at following instructions, then you can probably keep it for a long time. If you treat it nice, it might last you the rest of your life. It probably isn't the best choice for, like, gaming or something, but, like, if you just want a computer to play around with, I would say it probably wor- it would probably work just fine. Were there any of the modules that you thought, man, they could have done a better job on this one? So, one that I thought they could have done a better job of was the Ethernet. It looks like a, if you take, like, a 3DL and then make, like, it very thick and then make it out of plastic with wire showing, and then with, like, an Ethernet um, port with a Type-C on the other side. That's basically what they have. This predates you, but if anybody remembers the old, like, PCMCAA Ethernet cards, that's largely how I would describe it. Just, obviously, the PCMCA is a lot much smaller because it's fitting into the into the expansion card, but then you've got kind of, like, almost like this little wart that hangs off of the computer, and then that allows you to do Ethernet. Uh, one important detail is that it, like most laptops, when you take when you want to like replace the hard drive or something, you like flip it upside down and you take out the screws and then the back usually comes off. Or if it's like a laptop that isn't supposed to be able to do that, then it's kind of like glued shut. But um, for this one, you undo the screws and then the keyboard actually comes off and it's um it's magnetic, so you lift from like the sides of the um, keyboard at the part close to the monitor and you can 
after you've undone the screws, you actually lift it up, and it's magnetic. There's a ribbon cable connected to the, I think it's the motherboard. And um, so, basically, you take the keyboard off, and then you set it, like, in front of the computer. And then, um, so, you, and then all the stuff is there instead of on the back, which is where most are. So you're able to work on it almost kind of like working under the hood of a car. You open open yeah. the open it up and then all of your computer is inside of there inside of their cha- on the chassis. Yep. Do you think that the laptop is overly thick or how, how does it compare as far as widthwise? Yeah, you can maintain it all yourself, but did they cut corners to make it so that you know, the so that you could get into it or is it as thin or thinner than other laptops? Um, like, the back part of it is probably about as thick as, like, most laptops, but it slowly starts getting thinner, so it's, like, it's super thin, and they, uh, they built it really well, and that's cool. And then the frame, like, around the monitor actually comes off, and there's little switches so you can actually disconnect the webcam and the microphone, like, you can, like, sever the connection, so I thought that was kind of cool. Overall, zero to ten, how would you rate your product? How happy are you? Um, ten being the best laptop ever made or ever could be made, I'd say this is like a good nine, nine and a half because it'll last me a long time and it's fairly powerful and they did a really good job designing it so they can be both modular and it looks good and stuff. One important note is, though, you can only have four, like, USB modules on the sides. So if you're going to order it, order only four. Yeah. Well, you can order more because you can, like, take them out. But, like, if you don't plan on taking them out very often, then, yeah, only order four. And don't order the Ethernet because it doesn't look very good. But Talk a little bit about the expansion modules and how those work. It's actually really cool how it works. So there is four... Uh, type c like ports and then those are connected to the motherboard so what you do is it's a square box maybe an inch by an inch not even and one side there's a type c and then on the other side there's hdmi USB-A, whatever and then you actually like plug it in to the computer kind of like how you plug a cord into it but that connects straight to the motherboard I don't say this often, it it truly takes a lot to impress me, but I have to tell you, pulling the framework out and seeing it in person, I would tell you it is one of the most impressive laptops I've seen in a long, long time. If you went into it with the expectation that you're buying a premium laptop, that's what you would feel like you were delivered in the mail. The difference is when you go to make a change, when you want to make a change, when you want to repair, when you want to upgrade, when you want to keep your laptop, Framework doesn't prevent you from doing so. All of the parts are available on their site at frame.work. As he said, they have videos that will walk you through the installation or replacement of any part. They include the necessary Torx driver and the pry tool. So everything that you need to own and maintain your laptop is available to you, and they polish all the corners. So I cannot overemphasize enough the things like when your operating system isn't installed we're used to getting a no system disk or disk error or something along those lines no bootable media we get a message like that and we've just learned as 
techies or as administrators that that's what you do. Framework walks you through the process. Hey, there's nothing I can boot off of. Here's what you're looking for, a device that you can boot from. And when you plug that device in, it walks you through a little wizard. Here's how to get to the boot menu. Here's how to boot off of that device. Here's what your next steps are. And it guides you through going from a fully functional piece of hardware to a completely installed laptop. You can learn more over at frame.work. A huge thanks to Framework for the work that they're doing and the ability to empower users to own their laptops. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of October 15th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. The Free Desktop Project has released the alpha version for Weston. QT 6.6 has been released, and curl 8.4 is out to address some security vulnerabilities. OpenZFS 2.2 has been released. The Tor Browser 13.0 has also been released. Open3D Engine 23.10, the open source game engine, has been released. EasyOS 5.5.5 is out. Ubuntu 23.10 has arrived. Debian-based MX Linux has released version 23.1, and OpenBSD 7.4 has also been released. Google has proposed new MSeal memory sealing syscall for Linux. The HashiCorp CEO predicts an open-source software-free Silicon Valley unless the open-source model evolves. Red Hat has shut down its announcement mailing list. However, it has left its RSS feed active for announcements. The Linux Foundation's civil infrastructure platform has announced a Linux kernel with a decade-long support. And Microsoft has put out an unexpected tutorial on how to install Linux. In hardware news, System76 has updated their Thelio line of Linux systems. In open-source security news, two critical security flaws discovered in the open-source Casa OS personal cloud software could be successfully exploited by attacks to achieve arbitrary code execution and take over susceptible systems. Cyber attackers are targeting Linux SSH servers with the Shellbot malware, and they have a new method for hiding their activity, using hexadecimal IP addresses to evade behavioral-based detection. CISA releases new guidance on boosting open-source software security, and CISA has also released updated information regarding the AVOS locker ransomware, which has affected Linux. Moving on to open-source AI news, Project AI releases three AI ML security tools as open-source. Google researchers introduce an open-source library in JAX for deep learning on spherical surfaces. And lastly, researchers from the University of Manchester introduced Mental Llama, the first open-source LLM series for readable mental health analysis with the capacity of instruction following. It wouldn't be a party at Red Hat Summit or anywhere else if we didn't take some time to talk to Matthew Miller from the Fedora Project. So Matthew Miller, Fedora Project lead. Welcome in, sir. Welcome. I'm happy to be the life of the party, I guess. You are. So tell. I want to start with this. Tell me what's new in Fedora. Um, you know, over the past year, over the past two years, what has the trajectory of Fedora kind of looked at? What have you guys been working on? What are you proud of? Yeah, um, we, it's been like a month since the Fedora the thirty eight Fedora Linux thirty eight release, so it feels like so long ago. I have to try to bring things up out of the depths of my mind as we're trying to go on to the next things. But I think uh, in general. Uh, Fedora works by doing a lot of integration of all the up, sort of upstream projects. So there's a lot of things that are going on in all the upstreams that 
are available, like new developments in GNOME and KDE and all that stuff. So that that's kind of neat. But some of those aren't like they're new features that are, we're bringing to users that are cool, but they're not necessarily like Fedora things. So a lot of the Fedora things that are happening that I think are actually really good are kind of under the hood, and so they don't aren't 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 user exposed. Um, so it, it, I don't know, it's a little bit harder to, to like make them celebratory features. But there's yeah. some cool things. I was looking back at the, at the change list from this last release. Uh, one of the things there's a step towards reproducible builds, which is a, this software supply chain stuff is all up in the news these days. Basically, can we trust what we're building? Mm-hmm. And so Debian Project actually worked really hard on this, and we're benefiting a lot from that. But we're kind of following. We're, we're uh, taking steps to do the same kind of things where if you have a package, a software, you know, RPM package, mm-hmm. um, every time you build it, you get the same thing, which is important because you can then make sure that when we're building our packages in Fedora, it actually is what we say it is, which, yeah. um, you know, we like you to trust us, but even better, you shouldn't have to be able to, you should just be able to verify, verify right? Trust, but verify, I think yeah. is the tradition thing there. So we're moving some, you know, some steps to being able to do that with more packages, which I think will be really nice. And then there's some things about package automation and things that we're working on that'll make things a lot easier to put Fedora together to bring it to people. Mm-hmm. Um, See, uh, yeah, so there's like a lot of infrastructure things that are kind of constantly going. So we're working on making that build on infrastructure better, which makes it easier to get involved in things. Uh, I don't think we haven't had any really flashy features for a little while, which I don't know. It makes, it makes marketing, make marketing hard, but there's also a, like, it just works and it's reliable. That's, um, people keep coming up to me here at the summit and saying, you know, how stable and how they stopped distro hopping because they finally found something that just works for them. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and like, okay, that's, there's something nice about being quiet and, um, not not having drama, but it's nice to have too. Although drama is easier to talk about. Um, in the course of that, though, we want to make sure we're not just going in the same direction forever, because like, mm-hmm. they can kind of get into the habit. Okay, now we're one step at the, after another. So we're working on a five-year strategy, strategic plan of where we want to be as a project in five years, okay. and uh, we have. Uh, we, uh, a guiding star, a basic principle. Like this is what we're trying to do with this, and that is we're going to try to double the number of active contributors in five years. Okay. So we have more people who are every day working on the project. And right now, that's about two hundred people who like you know, show up and mm-hmm. are vis- visible, uh, active, which is pr- that's a pretty good number. But you know, I'd like that to be you know four hundred, five hundred people every day as a kind of the core developer set. And I think, um, you know. You've been doing tech journalism for a while. Um, I think, has anyone ever guessed what's going to happen in five years and gotten People it right? People guess all the time. Yeah, right. But yeah, we guess all the time. Have Sometimes it works how's out. How's your track record? Right? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, right? Like, I mean, it's, it, you, you can, you can see some big trends, but like predicting mm-hmm. is really hard. So I didn't want to set like a, here's what the technologies we're going to have in five years. Because mm-hmm. we have some kind of big themes and then just that goal of, if we make sure that we have an active, healthy community that's involved, no matter where the technology goes in five years, we'll have a community ready to be there and build it and make it more and more awesome for whatever the shape is. So what kind of steps are you taking? What kind of things are you doing to align yourself to be able to achieve that guiding star, so to speak? Yeah, so uh, one of the first things we need to do is better metrics because I just told you about 200 and mm-hmm. uh, we need to have a number. So we're actually working on doing some things with some of the data science people. Uh, Fedora actually, uh, we don't, 
some of these things are easy. So a lot of like projects that are trying to do open source metrics are like, just go look at the GitHub. Mm-hmm. But Fedora has you know, thousands, tens of thousands of Git repos for all these different packages, and they're all scattered across different things. A lot of it, you know, source packaging, and then it's upstreams. And so we have so much activity, it leaves a big digital trail, but it's, um, it, we need some, uh, I don't know, data mining, I guess, or data analysis on that. So we have some people who are working on doing that. That's going to be the, the very first step is making sure we have that there. Um, but then one of the next really important things is a focus on mentorship, which we've had um, some themes of this in Fedora and we've had like, um, like the outreachy program or Google Summer of Code where we've yeah. got you know, mentor programs, but we actually want to go a step bigger and our, my, uh, headline for this is everyone in Fedora is a mentor and everyone in Fedora has a mentor. I like that. So, and you know, there's um, a little bit of debating about, do you mean actually everybody? And you know, um, as much as possible. Yeah. Because everybody has something to learn and everybody has something to teach. And, uh, one of the problems we have with onboarding in a big project like Fedora is people come and they're excited and it is immediately overwhelming because mm-hmm. there are like the question isn't what can I do? There's so much to do. Mm-hmm. It's then you're like, oh, well, now there's 4000 things to do. And now I'm just going to go back and read my book. Uh, so instead, if you have a personal relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, and you like know people, then you can sort of look around and you, you feel comfortable, and then it becomes easy to naturally do things and get involved. So your premise is, if we build the community, the technology will come. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that's true anywhere. It's especially true in a distribution where we are again, like we're in integration. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, and we talk a lot about innovation and you know um, that kind of thing, but. Like our, our job isn't really that kind of innovation. The software innovation is happening out there in the upstreams mm-hmm. of the world. And, you know, Fedora people are often a deeply a part of that. And sometimes it happens at Fedora, like the roots of, you know, Ansible, like that, that was the Fedora infrastructure tooling, like it grew up into that eventually. That's a fun story, but, um, that stuff happens outside of what we're doing in building a distro. Mm-hmm. So, um, being adaptable and having people who are excited about you know, the community around it is really more important than the focus on the tech because that lets us do the tech really well because our mission, you know, it's a tech mission in yeah. the end. It's, uh, but it, yeah, it's a tech mission and it's a social mission. That's why I don't know if you know that the Fedora foundations, this is um, something we say to ourselves a lot, but let me not advertise all the time. It's friends, features, freedom, and first. And that's kind of, um, the first time is about 10 years ago, uh, when Fedora started thinking about, like, what's our strategy? What are we doing here? Mm-hmm. Kind of came up with these values to drive things. And I think they've always been kind of there. We kept to them, but all of, whenever we think about what are we doing here, kind of come back to those. And mm-hmm. I think it's really nice that friends is one of those. Like, that's, this is a collection of people doing something fun together and we like each other. That makes it a good functional community, not mm-hmm. just a, um, you know, not just a project. Well, at the end of the day, you have people that say things like, it's just a tool. But the reality of the situation is, first of all, those relationships are real. And maybe the tool is the thing that brings them together, or it's the thing that both people are passionate about that brings them together. But it sort of undermines the gravity of the situation to just call it a tool, because it really, the technology is much more than that. Yeah, and I think, um, in some ways, the technology... Is it, there, there's a nice self-referential thing, I guess, or self-feeding thing, where uh-huh. the technology, the tool is useful and the tool is good, and there's a lot of people for that's 
that's sufficient. And yeah. it's actually, I think it's great that as open source world, we're building these tools that are beneficial to people. And, you know, for with Fedora, people can have it for free. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and we've had, you know, no people, you know, who wouldn't have had the options they had if they didn't have Fedora to give them that. So that's, it's cool that those tools are there and we're making them better and better. Um, and then people who are passionate about working together on it, uh, you know, have the tool to collect around and that like let, lets us build a community because you can't, you have to have a shared interest, a shared uh-huh. thing to build a community. Uh-huh. Community isn't just a random collection of attributes. It's, you know, people who care about a thing together. And so that provides a core for that, which lets us build that community, which lets us build better tools. And it's nice, a nice cycle. So yeah, basically feeding that cycle is what the strategy is ultimately going to be all about. As you talk about the rapid development of Fedora and the and 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 the intense work that goes into each release, where are you at in that process now? What things are you looking forward to? What things are you know? What things are are immediately on the horizon for you? So we're kind of in the, the calm after the release a little bit, um, where people are kind of thinking about what's next. Some people are already uh, people don't always follow the cycle; they're working on whatever the next thing is. Um, but so we're basically collecting change proposals. So that's how we have a formal process for this is like if you want to make a big change um you uh communicate it and sometimes these are things if it's something that's basically you're changing something that's all in your area like say you're you know uh working on i don't know you're the rust compiler maintainer and you're making a change to the rust compiler Mm -hmm. that's basically self-contained change like you you, you're doing it there but you might want to put it as a change to advertise it so that's basically look um, that's get those get rubber stamped in, in in a list. Then there are system wide changes that affect more things, like a upcoming one uh, DNF. This is again infrastructure stuff. If this uh-huh. works, nobody will notice. But um, DNF is you know package manager that um, is the higher level above the RPM package that you know, does dependency resolving, pulls down things from mirrors and puts everything together. Uh, that was written mostly in Python, which is a great programming language, but tends to, can be memory hungry mm-hmm. and can be a little, it's not, um, it, it can achieve good performance. People use it in HPC for some amazing things, but it, it, it's, it's performing in specific ways. And so it's also kind of slow for this tool. It's been a gripe for, a while, uh, so that's being rewritten. Um, it's it's being written in C plus uh, okay. which is an interesting choice. Which I could, uh, um, but it, that, that's going to use a lot less memory and be faster. And um, so this infrastructure things, I think that's pretty neat. Let's work on a new installer front end that will be a little. I know that people have um, complained about the installer UI for. It's been a been a favorite complaint of people for years. So we'll, we'll have that kind of that result. Take that away from people. So there's some small things there, um, but I do think also like the increased automation is there. Um, yeah. Again, it, this is on the packaging side. On, the, on what we're delivering, I'm seeing we're seeing a lot of uh, Fedora Core OS being uptake and uh, and you know the history of that. Um, Core OS was a you know a different distribution that uh, was kind of focused on. Uh, operating system as a service almost and mm-hmm. sort of a, a um, curated very small operating system meant for running containers. Red Hat bought CoreOS the company and through whatever CoreOS the operating system kind of ended up getting you know merged together with some stuff in working on in Fedora. And so we've uh it I would have liked that to come around a little faster, but it's really a it's a really neat operating system for you know running server cluster kind of thing uh and uh 
it, it's what they build OKD for for OpenShift. Like that's it's built on top of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Fedora one is you know, very flexible. You can do all sorts of things with it. And I'm starting to see a lot of people doing that. So yeah. I think that's that's neat. I think that's neat technology. Um, and we're probably going to do more with that and with you know, silver blue, the same technology on the desktop, mm-hmm. those kind of things. I think I've lost the thread of what I was going to say a while ago, but there's some... Uh, you, you answered my question. Why is, why is coming to Summit an important priority for Fedora? Well, I like to see people and talk to people, and so okay. there are a lot of different people I see and talk to, And but I definitely... Um, there are people here who are in you know, rel customers mm-hmm. and you know also ansible openshift customers that i tend to only see here because they have their you know their connection is in through rel rather than through community you know, community things mm-hmm. but i often see people who you know like i said today people admiring the stability um but people who are interested in uh, what's happening next in mm-hmm. rel because uh, you know, every three years, the rel you know, sent to a stream now is forked off of Fedora and that mm-hmm. will feed into the next rel. So people, you know, like to run it to see what's, what's coming up next. And yeah. also, um, how, you know, if people want to influence it, like, uh, if you want to influence what's coming on, you can talk to your salespeople and whatever. And, you know, we, this is not my area of the business. So tread very carefully, but, yep. you know, Red Hat is, tries to be responsive to customers, but, Almost uniquely, like if you really want something, you can come to Fedora and you don't have to go through any sort of sales bureaucracy or whatever. You can just start building things and then skip the queue and go to the back room where the sausage is made. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go into RHEL, right. but you can have a lot of influence and it makes it makes it a lot easier if you're like, look, I proved out the concept. Here it is. Um, and wouldn't it have to not work more than it works for it not to go into rel? Like if you go and fix a problem, somebody comes through and they say, I have a better way to do this. And they present it. And let's just say for the sake of argument, everybody universally agrees like, yeah, that works really great. There's a pretty high bar that that would eventually make its way. Yeah. So I think that that's definitely true for things that fix a specific problem or bugs or something like that. No, yeah, that no question. But when it's something like it's an added feature or a different functionality, Mm. it may be something that Red Hat's like, yeah, that's cool, but that's not like we can't. We don't have the resources to support that thing, or that's not a direction we might want to go in. But, uh, but that's actually also one of the things that um, we're looking at as Red Hat. Uh, So we also have a thing that's part of Fedora called Apple Extra Mm -hmm. Packages for Enterprise Linux, um, which is uh, because of that exact thing where, so Fedora has tens of thousands of packages. I don't, I'm not going to embarrass myself by saying the wrong number on the Mm -hmm. podcast, but um, a lot. And RHEL is by nature much smaller because it is a subset that the company feels they can commercially support. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, the goal really is for each RHEL release to be tighter so that there's mm-hmm. a solid base that can be very well supported. Whereas, you know, in Fedora, basically, hey, if, if you want to do it, cool. Which is, um, I, I think the support people's nightmare in some ways. Uh, but so we have Apple, which is basically Fedora packages that didn't make it into RHEL, but rebuilt so that you can be installed in RHEL. So you can add the Apple repo and so on RHEL, CentOS, or one of the rebuilds, mm-hmm. you can just use uh, these these packages, giving you a wider amount of software. And uh, people keep asking, hey, Red Hat, why don't you, why can't we have this? Why don't you support this? Why can't this be official? So 
and it's looking at ways, and I'm not going to commit to any support things or mm-hmm. whatever. Again, not my side of the business, but I know people are really interested in you know, that Apple side of things and how how Red Hat can provide value outside of just that core base, because obviously people people want more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's a way that some of this stuff that might not go into the core base still might get some level of interest and collaboration. And actually, even if Red Hat doesn't pick it up, if there's some, you know, some database software or, I don't know, memory accelerator or whatever thing yeah. that people are, are working on... Um, you can work on that with other people who care about the same thing. And maybe, you know, that thing isn't your differentiator. It's not uh-huh. like your, it's not your business thing. It's just something like everybody's got to do this somehow. This makes it better. It's the whole open source thing. Let's work on it together. Yep. This is a place everybody can work on it together and it can be available there for the rel ecosystem. You mentioned that there was an interesting story behind Ansible and its origins with Fedora. Would you be willing to share that? Yes, and I hope it won't get me in trouble. I think it, and it's basically, um, there was a thing called Funk, okay. which, which is, I think the F might have stood for something Fedora related even. I don't know. It might just be a function, which was kind of a precursor by uh, Michael DeHaan and he was working you know, at Red Hat and it was used in Fedora infrastructure and I, I want to make sure I, I don't miss any getting details wrong, but basically, yeah. um, you know, he's like, we should make this into a product. He wanted to work on it more. And, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know the details. Red Hat declined. Okay. So he went off, started the Ansible company and, um, you know, he started getting a pretty big open source following. And at, um, a little bit later, um, Red Hat had to say, okay, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> exactly. You know, and actually, I think this is, um, I haven't been reading the official messaging, so mm-hmm. I hope I'm not getting in trouble here, but, um, I think Red Hat should say more that, um, it, like, we talk about innovation a lot. Innovation is important, mm-hmm. but actually, Red Hat's core skill is not innovation. The, the important thing, so where Red Hat's had the big successes with, um, Rel, you know, that's Linux, not invented by Red Hat, uh-huh, Fedora, uh-huh. community around that. Ansible, where the innovation, like, it had to succeed outside of Red Hat. Right. And then OpenShift, like, we tried, like, four times to do OpenShift kind of things. We knew the idea, uh-huh. um, but it didn't really become successful until Kubernetes came along, and that wasn't invented by Red Hat. But Red Hat was in tune with all this going on yeah. and very quickly saw, okay, there, that's the one we want to invest in and, and kind of ride that open source wave. So it really works best when Red Hat is really like the, they, you know, powered by open source innovation, like that line, like that's, that's not BS. Like that, that's how it works and it works the best. Like the, mm-hmm. there's this outside open source things and then Red Hat can see where, okay, we can make a difference. We mm-hmm. can get involved in the right place and we can make, you know, the community succeed better. We can make the whole thing work well. And we can also, you know, make a product that can then make um, paychecks, which then make it able to work on open source all day, which is lovely. Yeah. And, you know, to their credit, they, Reddit has a long track history of finding projects that are successful or projects that contribute value to the open source community. And then they either put resources or money behind it to help empower those projects, to help empower those people so that, well, one, so that Red Hat can leverage those things for the product side, absolutely, they're in business to make money. But at the same time, if they're also, they're extremely good stewards of the community pouring back into it constantly. Yeah, absolutely. I believe that. And I think that um, it makes it work better than trying to do everything 
um, ourselves. And you know, when th- there's there's nothing wrong with the kind of open source where you make a product and then there's also a you, you, it's on GitHub and it's mm-hmm. got a you know, whatever open license and you know people can install it if they good luck installing it. Like it's, you know, I think that's from a open source um, point of like. It's better than it not being open source, yeah. but it's not the same as having something where it is really, you know, community driven and something that is available to everybody and has a has a life of its own outside of the company and the product. Very cool. What do you see? Where do you see Fedora going next? What what, what is the next thing that you're excited about as you think about the upcoming future of Fedora and 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 your team and, and the people yeah. around it? Well, I'm. Actually, the, the most thing I'm excited about is our c- conference in person in Ireland. Okay. It'll be in the beginning of August, a flock to Fedora. It's our developer focused, you know, contributor focused conference. I don't want to, a developer imp- kind of implies some sort of coding thing, but it's much wider than that. A contributor conference. Um, it's, uh, we'll see how it all goes this year. It's our first year back in person after okay. COVID things and travel budgets are tight and well, tech companies. What was the, are not, what was the but, term? It wasn't flock. It was, uh, nest. Yes, you're right. Yes. So we did flock to Fedora was, uh-huh. I, I don't know how that name came up, but that's the idea. Everybody was coming around the world you know, uh-huh. to be in a, excuse me, a big flock together. And so yeah, in COVID times, we came up with nest. We're on our nests at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're uh, now leaving the nest again back to the flock. So I'm excited for that. And I hope, um, yeah, we'll kind of talk about these ideas about the strategy mm-hmm. and the things we talked about. And, um, I think, Every year, that's a really energizing thing for me. Um, I think we've done an amazing job with the virtual events, um, mm-hmm. even if I do say so myself. Actually, I can say this because I didn't actually do much of the event part. Uh, my coworker, Marie, did a huge amount of that um, and the event team people. But uh, our virtual events were the only ones that I liked. And it's not just because it was ours. Ours, they were so good because, and it was really comes back to that friends thing. And we mm-hmm. did a really good job of making it feel like we could you know, a place to connect with people you haven't seen for a while and bring everybody together in the virtual events. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad we could do that. And it reached, you know, we could reach a lot more people in the world that way, but there's also just something to in person that is, uh, you can't, you can't beat it. Um, yep. So I'm really looking forward to that again. Matthew Miller, Fedora Project Lead, I guess this hour. Matthew, we appreciate the time as always. I absolutely love and appreciate any time I have an opportunity to speak with Matthew Miller and find out about all of the excellent work that he and the entire team at Fedora are doing. I want you to consider this. Projects like the Framework Laptop never get off the ground without help from places like Red Hat or Canonical. Consider this. The two supported distros on the Framework Laptop are Ubuntu Proper and Fedora. I don't know if Framework's only option was to work with companies like Microsoft, who are well-known for their willingness and ability to work with small companies, that that laptop ever gets off the ground. But because Framework can work with places like Red Hat that produce Fedora, because Framework can work with places like Canonical that produce Ubuntu, and with the community so that every other distro known to man works flawlessly right out of the box, Framework becomes a reality and becomes a reality that a 13-year-old spends half his life saving for and then investing in a laptop that he believes will last him for the rest of his life. We'll see if that actually works out. But Framework inspires that sort of thing. Coming up next week, if you don't usually join us live, you're not going to want to miss this. Senator Kevin Kramer from the U.S. Senate is going to join us. We're going to talk about net neutrality. Senator, not a big fan of net neutrality. Doesn't think it's good for the internet. Doesn't think it's good for freedom. 
Your questions will go to the front of the line. So if you join us via phone, via mumble, or via the chat room, geeklab.ninja will ask those questions live on the air. Of course, if you can't make it, send it into live at asknoahshow.com. But if ever there was a time to join us live next week is the week. I invite you to head over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. As we hear the music in our ears, that means we're out of time. But all of the articles and references that we use to make the show are available to you there at podcast.asknoahshow. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. <laughs>